Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Carol Larson. She is the director of the Feeding and Swallowing Program at Boston Children's Hospital. She's worked at Boston Children's Hospital for 24 years. She went to Syracuse University for her undergraduate degree and attended Teachers College Columbia University for her master's. She completed her clinical fellowship at a hospital in the Bronx, New York, where she worked with patients, or where she worked with adults and pediatrics. And it was there in 1995 that she first learned that speech language pathologists were starting to work in the NICU. She later returned to Boston to take a job at Boston Children's Hospital. She spent her early years at Children's Hospital in feeding and swallowing and also in the cleft palate craniofacial clinic. Her second passion after pediatric dysphagia is cleft palate and craniofacial disorders, working with infants with craniofacial conditions with underlying feeding and swallowing deficits are among her favorite types of patients to work with. She also teaches the cleft palate and craniofacial disorders course at the graduate level at Boston University and Emerson College in Boston. Carol also presents nationally on the topic of pediatric dysphagia, focusing on thickening feedings in pediatrics, aerodigestive disorders, and pediatric feeding and swallowing. Kara is currently the director of the Feeding and Swallowing Program and oversees a staff of 18 SLPs specializing in pediatric feeding and swallowing. She's the lead clinician in the Aerodigestive Center, where she spends two to three days per week in the clinic, working closely with pediatric gastroenterologists, pulmonologists, nutritionists, and social work. This team approach is essential to the management of complex pediatric aerodigestive disorders. Counseling families on their child's feeding and swallowing status is the heart of what she does, listening to families sharing their highs and lows and experiences in feeding and swallowing. She's also passionate about training and mentoring clinical fellows and students and always has someone with her. Kara feels a strong responsibility to share her knowledge with the next generation of SLPs. She's been so fortunate to be able to work at Boston Children's. She absolutely loves what she does and wants to share all her knowledge that she's acquired over the last two decades. Kara shares that some days I still get goosebumps walking into work, thinking that I'm a part of this amazing institution committed to improving the lives of our patients and their families. This is just such a wonderful conversation. I hope you all really enjoy this. Thank you so much, Kara. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, 
My goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Kara. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. So, yeah, tell, tell the people a little bit about yourself. I'm Kara Larson. I'm a speech-language pathologist at Boston Children's Hospital, where I've been for over two decades. I've been there for 24 years I did my undergrad at Syracuse University and then went to New York City to Teachers College at Columbia for my master's. I'm a New York City girl at heart, I think. I stayed for my clinical fellowship and worked at a hospital in the Bronx, which was just really interesting. Um, I did adults in pediatrics, but knew I wanted to make my way back to Massachusetts where my family is, and I was able to do so and start at Children's Hospital back, back in the late 90s. Right now, I'm the director of our feeding and swallowing program, and I oversee our really amazing staff of 18 speech pathologists that do just feeding and swallowing. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. What a, what a dream. I want to hang out with you guys someday. It started <laughs> with myself and one other speech pathologist, and to have seen how it has grown has been really cool. And we're, it's a great group. We're just sort of like a big family of all women. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. I just, I think I just want people to hear like people that are struggling with program development and getting programs off the ground and, you know, maybe having one or two SLPs, like you can build this thing to have a lot, a lot of SLPs. So Mm -hmm. I love that. I always, you know, the phrase everybody says, if you build it, they will come. And, And that is certainly true. So, so that's been really fun and exciting to watch younger students come along, turn into clinical fellows, turn into you know, really dynamic speech pathologist. It's really fun to watch that. And I have to remind myself, I am not on the other side of things, but I'm the older clinician of the group. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I, what am I 15 years in now? I don't even think that someone was like, Oh, well, you've been in this field for forever. And I'm like, what? No, I'm like, I still feel like I'm like a baby, like everybody else. No. Uh, Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So, Oh, awesome. I, I love hearing about that background. Um, yeah. So where, where do you want to start? What do you want to talk about today? Oh my goodness. Um, I guess so many different things come to mind. I, I would love to talk about a bit about, you know, building a team. Um, I would love to talk about thickening any pediatric feeding speech pathologist is just always struggling with feeding and swallowing and thickening. Do we, don't we? And I think I said to you, like the good, the bad, and the ugly around that. Yeah. I have sort of a second passion, which is cleft palate and craniofacial. And I do some teaching in that area that I really like and a lot of mentoring and things like that. So gosh, I could talk about any of these things for a really long time. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I'll give you just a little background. I, my son was born with, you know, feeding issues. He was in the NICU for 15 days and you know, had an NG tube and there was no SLPs in the NICU in the hospital we were at. And they just kept telling us, Oh, he'll figure it out. He'll figure it out. And I just knew. And that really was just sort of like 
you know, what I needed to dive into this stuff a lot more. So it's really, this is so deeply personal to me because mm-hmm. I don't want any family to go through what we went through. You know, it was just, I had this little itty bitty baby and why isn't he eating? Why isn't, you know, why can't he feed? And nobody had any answers. So wow. um, I'm just really passionate about getting this information out there that there is help, there is support. There are so many things that we can do to help these little babies. So he's, he's doing wonderful now, but it's definitely part of my life mission to, get this information out there. I'm glad he's doing well. And, um, I think working with the family and the parents as is, you know, is, is 50%, if not more of the work, I sort of feel like feeding the baby is the easy part. Yeah. Managing and educating and counseling and supporting parents is so much of what we do in pediatrics in general, but in feeding, yeah. Right. We feed our kids so many times a day and it's an automatic, right? Yeah. What do you expect? Was it what to expect when you're expecting? Yeah. Is it a right. It's probably ancient now. Um, I don't even know if it's on audible, but yeah. <laughs> right. No one says you may have trouble breastfeeding. You may have trouble bottle feeding and you don't even know what goes into feeding until the process is disrupted. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's all I've known. All I've known is, you know, we take 30 to 45 minutes, three, four times a day to feed him. That's just what our lives look like. And then I had my daughter and she eats fruit snacks running around the kitchen. I mean, upside down, eating pudding on the couch, you know, it's like every, you know, and it's so, it's even more crazy to me. Like, oh my gosh, this is so much work. And it's, it's what I'm used to. So it's fine, but it's like, gosh, parents just need so much support with this stuff. If they don't understand what they're doing and they don't have the support. And it's, it's funny. Some days I feel like I'm texting with my son's therapist, like more than I'm actually working. Cause I just Mm -hmm. have a dream team right now for him. And I just, I'm constantly talking to them and they're like, this is what we did today. How's it going at home? Blah, blah, blah. And I just, I love that. It's, it's the only way that it all works. Yeah. And I, I think you bring up a great point, like a really interesting question in upon meeting a family in the NICU or outpatient is, Oh, is this your first? Yeah. And if they say yes, then, you know, and I'm a mom as well. And I think, wow, it's such a different experience. If your first is someone who's not following kind of the playbook. Right. Right. And then you think, but this is all they know, right? This is what they're navigating versus someone who says, Oh, she's our third. And you think, okay, they have a lot more tools in the toolbox, but they also have this, you know, picture of what normal is. And then they're not seeing that. And why isn't, you know, why isn't this infant or this baby kind of following the same trajectory? So I, I feel like I adjust my kind of clinical skills and my counseling based on birth order, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. It's, it's the truth. It's it, just like you said, for me, I think I didn't know any better. So I think it was a good thing because I just powered through and I thought this is what we have to do. And then I would talk to friends and they're like, Oh, I, that's crazy. That's, you know, no wonder you don't have any, you know, no wonder you look like hell, you know, I just like, <laughs> but it was almost those conversations were even mo- more discouraging because just no one knew what I was going through and I just didn't right. have support really. And so obviously why I'm so passionate about getting support for SLPs and parents now, but yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the thickening. Cause I know that was a big thing that I went through with my son. He had horrific reflux. He could barely keep anything down and, you know, they wanted us to put rice in his bottle and, you know, all that stuff to, to help. And I remember, you know, as an SLP working with adults, I'm like, I don't know if we're supposed to thicken for babies. Right. And yeah. So I'd love to dive into this. Sure. Sure. So this is something that I do all day, every day. And I, I, 
passionate about thickening and, and sort of seeing how it has all evolved and like what we used to do even five, 10 years ago is not what we do now. So I think what's been really interesting is talking about thickening for reflux versus thickening for aspiration. And, and I certainly have the good fortune and recognize that I work in a, a big city pediatric specialized hospital with really accomplished physicians and, and working on a multidisciplinary team. So a lot of my work is in the era digestive center where I work hand in hand with GI and pulmonary nutrition and social work. And we see the patients together. So myself and our gastroenterologists and pulmonologists may all watch the baby feed. And one thing I think I had sent was I thought that the revised guidelines of the American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition that came out in 2018 were a bit transformational in that PPIs were or not found to be effective and we're changing our mindset that that's not the first line of defense. And as an SLP, people might be thinking, well, we don't prescribe medication and absolutely we do not. But every infant that comes in, primary concern is, arching, crying, poor feeding, spitting up, or the referral concern is reflux. And it's something we have to be really knowledgeable about and support families. And a lot of families like, we just want an antacid, you know, um, what about an antacid or what about increasing the dose of the antacid? And and now I think we've really learned a lot about non-acid reflux and that these infants are refluxing, but it's non-acidic because it's breast milk or formula where the pH is six, right? So they're still having symptoms, but now we're really using thickening as our first treatment for reflux. And I think that was a really big switch and continues to be kind of for us in educating families and things like that. Not that infants wouldn't have a trial of antacids, but I think when the literature came out about increased risk of infection for long-term use of you know acid suppressant drugs, a lot of our physicians are very wary of it and we're trying thickening first. So, you know, in comes the SLP on, you know, what am I going to do now? Yeah. I think, I think the tough part for us was, you know, same thing, you know, they had prescribed the PPI for him and it changed everything. He, you know, was a new baby and, you know, could, could eat, could drink now. And then we tried to sort of wean off and do the thickening thing, but then it would be like, you know, we couldn't get it out of the bottle and we went through so many, I probably spent hundreds of dollars on mm-hmm. nipples and a way to feed. Like I said, I had no support. It was me learning as I went, but also even just like, if I wanted to take him out for the day, like we weren't home and I couldn't, it was, it was almost just, I hate to say it, like easier to pop a pill. I know a lot of people say that, you know, even as adults, it's easier to pop a pill than it is to stop drinking, you know, wine and eating chocolate, but it, <laughs> It is. And, and I wish I had known, you know, I, I try not to, you know, carry that burden. I wish I had known more about it back then. Cause that was literally those guidelines came out like the year after I went through all of this with my son. Right. So right. it was, yeah, I really had to try to protect my energy from getting upset about that because I did what I could, you of know, at course, the time. Of course. I mean, I have a teenager and I had a son on, on Zantac yeah. for yeah. a long time. Um, and it didn't really work. But I wanted it to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I think I sort of embrace the development of the ITSI, the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative. I'm really excited about it. And I'm really excited 
that we have at least something from which to measure all these consistencies. Because just like you're saying, there's nothing worse than a parent that walks in with a bag from Target and they've spent all this money on all of these bottles and they say nothing's working. Yeah. And that's so stressful, not to mention people needlessly, right? Spending money and time on this. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, it's like, well, it's so less about the shape of the nipple than it is about like what consistency does your baby need to be on? And then what flow rate will accommodate that thickness? So we really, you know, used to have these recipe sheets that we would give out and say, you know, your baby needs, we used to call nectar thick liquid. So here you go, you know, here, Mrs. Smith, here's the recipe, you know, it's one size fits all. And then as all these different formulas came out and are you ready to feed? Are you powder? Are you 24 calories or 26? And are you using beech nut cereal versus Gerber? And all of these variabilities, we just thought this isn't working. We have no standardization. So now, now we'll teach parents to ITSY test. We have little ITSY Ziploc bags that they take home from the visit. I love that. Um, And we teach them. So, you know, this is the consistency we're trying to achieve. You know, if you're on, you know, a NFML regular formula and we're going to, and you can get Earth's Best Rice cereal, this is going to be your recipe, but make sure it replicates. So we'll show them how to do the ITSY testing. And for some families, it's, it's really powerful because they feel as though, you know, they have this standardization, like I need to get, you know, to only X amount left in the syringe and I can kind of play with things till I achieve, you know, where I need to be. That's been really, really helpful. It's a lot more work. Um, but in the end, I think, um, it allows us to have standardization. So if I call my colleagues, you know, down in Florida, I would say, you know, that baby's on a, you know, a slightly thick from a Dr. Brown preemie nipple. And if you're switching the formula, you can, you know, work with it to get the same outcome. Yeah. What I, I love that clinical applicability of it's, you know, it's like everyone's just like, oh, it sounds so great, but actually hearing it. And I just, you know, as a mom, I just remember, I just wanted the tools to be able to do something, you know, so I, I would have loved to have been able to have Idzy, like you said, I mean, I was a mad scientist playing around with anything to get him to, to just eat. So, oh, that's awesome. I, I love, 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 love hearing that. We have a lot of infants on hypoallergenic formula or amino acid based formulas, and those don't thicken so great with rice cereal. And I think one thing we all struggle with, especially when you work with, you know, infants and younger children is, you know, the use of commercial thickeners. Like, should or shouldn't we be using gel mix and at what age? And so, you know, I always like to say that's a decision that we don't and shouldn't make. And we should make the decision in the presence of a gastroenterologist or otolaryngologist or pulmonologist or pediatrician in terms of age of the infant and introduction of a commercial thickener. Um, you know, gel mix is a wonderful product because it does thicken breast milk, but it has to be heated, right? So that adds sort of another element. Um, and for some families, you know, also, I think that we're a lot more aware of kind of incorporating equity, diversity and inclusion with our patients. And is gel mix something that a family has access to? Are they going to be able to order that online? Um, I think we've become much more aware of accessibility to thickeners. And 
if a family has WIC, you know, the Women, Infants, and Children government program, what do they have available for the family? And why might a family need, say, three boxes of oatmeal cereal when they're only supposed to get one a month? And so we'll, you know, send a letter of medical necessity or fill out a WIC extension form saying, you know, no, this child is not eating lots and lots of oatmeal by spoon. This is actually medically indicated to thicken their formula. So, you know, we need you to provide more of this for this family because it's medically indicated. And and these are things I would say like 10 years ago, I don't think I thought as much about. Yeah. So is that really what you guys, I, I know this is a very blanket overgeneralization statement, oatmeal, rice, are those sort of the kinds of things that you're recommending as opposed to the gel mix? Or is it really, you know, it's it's not a one size fits all. It's a, yeah. So it, it's certainly individualized for sure. You know, the other thing that has been in the mainstream press, right, is arsenic and rice cereal. You know, I remember getting ready for work and I hear like the morning of the Today Show and they're like, coming up. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, no. yeah. I know. I know. I know. I, I remember that. Too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The phone is going to be ringing because now every baby who's sickening with rice, rightfully so, right? I mean, you hear that headline and you think, my goodness, is this safe? Am I doing, you know, what am I, am, am what I feeding my infant safe? So, so we actually, we, we took a, a pretty thorough look at that. And um, again, like I've been at Children's so long, I didn't know I could go talk to the toxicologist at the hospital. Oh, cool. um, I know. Right. So we, um, we spoke to the toxicologist and, and we actually submitted some recipes saying, you know, example, this baby needs this much, much rice cereal per bottle and they'll have six bottles a day and they'll have 72 bottles a week and X amount of bottles per month. And, you know, this is their cereal load and sort of what is the arsenic risk. And it was really interesting. And I think what we found was, Infants that we were thickening with rice for say slightly or mildly thick were okay, but you know, we occasionally do have patients that are on moderately thick liquids that used to be honey thick where the toxicologist was like, you know what? That's a lot of exposure. Um, I can't say that it'll correlate, but if you have any other options, it would be great to, you know, try something else. Or I think also what we've in- implemented is as grain rotation. So why don't you do three bottles with oatmeal and three with rice? Um, or maybe we'll bring in a little bit of gel mix and do a little bit of gel mix for those bottles um, during the day. Maybe do cereal overnight because who wants to wake up and heat formula in the middle of the night with a crying baby, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So I, I feel as though there are just so many kind of variables and subtopics I think it's relevant to maybe talk about Simply Thick in the pediatric population. There was a recall on Simply Thick back in 2011 um, that it was uh, very concerning. There were um, reports of infants with um, bloating and and diarrhea, explosive diarrhea, and um, necrotizing enterocolitis, so bacteria in the intestine. And the concern or the common denominator was that all of the infants were on Simply Thick. And um, there was a voluntary recall, and it was specifically for the Simply Thick plant that was in Georgia. And they didn't know, um, was it a specific lot number or what was happening? So they had a recall. And, you know, there were several infant deaths as a result of the Simply Thick. So it was pulled from the market. And one, I remember that day so specifically because I was actually off and I got a call at home 
from our neonatologist saying like, do you keep a list? We need every baby that's on Simply Thick. And then we needed to extend it beyond the babies that were inpatient. And initially, I think we all thought like, wow, this is a great product. This is xanthan gum based. Um, it's not race cereal. It doesn't clog the nipple. The stability of the thickness stays a long time, you know, and it is, it is a good product. I think though it just got introduced to the infant population without maybe looking at all of the outcomes. So that was, I, I would say a significant event that I really remember. Um, you know, we have since reinitiated use of Simply Thick. It's a great product for our older kids. You know, um, we'll use it for kids that are a year corrected. Again, it's easy for families. It's measured out in the packet. It stays the same consistency. Um, and I think in terms of the gel mix, we'll use that as well. Um, I think we're a lot more cautious about using that in former premature infants. And again, we look to the guidance of our gastroenterologist in terms of the safety and when to introduce, which for us is typically three months corrected in any babies that are, that are born premature. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for spelling all that out. I, I love all these options because I feel like a lot of people just don't know where to turn, but then right. they're just stuck with all that, you know, all the options, what's best, what's not. Can you talk a little bit about different nipples that you guys use for, cause I know that was something that drove me absolutely bananas. Like I was the mom that was cutting the crisscross and every, you know, just, and then it's like, was it the right flow? And yeah, so right. I'd love to hear if there's sort of a more not standardized, but yeah, a better approach. <laughs> yeah, no, that that that's a really um, that's a great question because you know even to this day we still have families that will come in and and they take out the bottle and the liquid's really thick and you think wow how are they getting that out and then you look at the end of it and you think oh my gosh and you know for no other reason than wanting to help their baby get the liquid out they say wow kind of took a steak knife and yep, 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 opened yep. it up. I was, I was that mom. That was me. Yep. <laughs> so I think fortunately with, you know, the development of all of these products, now a lot of the um, bottle companies, you know, now have sort of a line of nipples that will kind of increase in flow rate. We um, at the hospital tend to use Dr. Brown because we can really kind of, you know, move the, babies along the kind of flow rate trajectory. Um, I also think the work of Britt Pados is really awesome in all of her flow rate studies and looking at her charts, you know, if the family brings in a specific brand nipple and the parents say, oh, this is slow flow. But if you actually look at her work and her research would say, actually, no, that's, you know, nine mLs per you know minute or something like that, or 25. It's actually, actually much faster than we thought. So I like the Dr. Brown in that, you know, we could move someone from a two to a level three to a four or back down if we're weaning them off the thickener. And, you know, there's a little bit of variability in wiggle room, but, you know, some parents say, I really want to use Tommy Tippy. Okay. We're like, let's take a look and see, you know, what, what their flow rates are. Um, for those infants with, you know, underlying dysphagia and we're doing, um, video fluoroscopy. We will obviously look at different flow rates and thicknesses. And especially if we have a baby from the NICU where we need to thicken a little bit and say they look great on slightly thick from a level one, we will look at the next flow rate. And I always encourage when I'm training clinicians saying, you know, they're good on slightly from a one, but 
depending on our thickener and, you know, the nurse is going to call at the end of the day on Friday and say the nipples clogged. Can I do the level two? And if it's a baby, you know, with underlying lung disease, you don't want to go to a faster flow unless you know it's safe. So we always bump up and say they're good on the one, but let's look at the two. And interestingly for some babies, right, their respiratory status is such that that slight change to a faster flow and they aspirate. Yep. I'm always amazed at the subtle differences in flow rate and how that can impact feeding. Yeah, that's what I remember. I remember like one would be just too hard for him to do. And so I go to the next one, but it, he would be, you know, gagging, sputtering, you know, all the things. So then I would try to cut that one a little bit. And, you know, that yeah, it, it's just, it's crazy. But yeah, like you said, it's such a subtle difference. It's the tiniest difference for these little babies. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was important. You know, we covered Simply Thick. We covered the gel mix, you know. Thickening breast milk, again, that's always a challenge, has been a challenge on how do we thicken breast milk. And if a mom can't breastfeed because it's not safe for the baby, just really supporting her desire and her efforts and, you know, supporting her pumping because that's not easy. You've got a baby in the hospital and you're pumping. Um, and sometimes giving permission to say it's okay. You know, when the moms are like, I'm exhausted. I can't do this. I'm like, you did it for four weeks. That's amazing. And your baby's going to grow and thrive and be wonderful, but we need you to be okay, right? We need the mom to be rested. We need her to be nourished and just feeling okay. So she can take care of her baby. And, and I'm absolutely a hundred percent an advocate for breastfeeding without a doubt, but I'm also very aware and understand and realize that it can't sometimes work for everybody and that's okay. And it's important to support moms and, and give them permission that it's okay. And no one's, no one's going to judge you. And anybody is, that is, is, is just not understanding the complexities of what you're going through with your baby and your family and your body. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so much. I, so my son has a submucosal cleft and just could never, he just could never latch. You know, we, we thought he was, but he just wasn't getting anything. So I ended up pumping. So I was, exclusively pumping for him. Plus, you know, he wasn't gaining weight. So they were supplementing with formula, but I just, I remember those first few months, like I so badly wanted to throw in the towel with pumping, but I also was so happy that he was getting some breast milk and, you know, the formula was helping him to gain weight. So we sort of did this hybrid thing for a few months and then I kind of figured it out and I was like, I'm used to pumping at this point. So I just stuck it out the whole year and I just, I was so proud of myself that I did that. But at the same time, like, I just remember with my daughter, I was like, it is what it is. Like, I, I was so happy that I just, you know, released that attachment that mm-hmm. I've got to do what's best for all of us. And it's, yeah, it's, yeah, comes easy to some people and it doesn't to others. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It, yeah. And then, you know, sometimes we have moms that have a whole freezer full of breast milk, yes. but they have dairy in it. And now the baby's on a, you know, a dairy-free diet and they're thinking, what am I going to do with that? And so we always say like, hold on to it. You know, it's good for a while and hopefully we can reincorporate it. Or, I mean, we've had moms, you know, use it in spoon feeding or do a dairy challenge and use it when you're, you know, they're a little older. So they're definitely, definitely trying to be creative and, and in that respect as well. Yeah. How are you guys handling the the formula shortage? Is that is that that's a huge issue? Yeah, huge yeah. issue for us, and and that's a, that's an excellent question. Um, my goodness, so certainly lots of phone calls, certainly really kind of stressed out families, and again, your baby has say right a milk protein allergy, they need a specialized formula, and now we have parents running around 
or sending family members, you know, we're in New England, so it's easy to get to Rhode Island and Connecticut and New Hampshire and Vermont and Maine just to find the formula. Um, and we will give out some samples, but we even had a period where we didn't even have any samples to give out for parents to hold on, you know, to t- kind of get them through. Um, so I think it's been helpful, you know, to have, if you're on this formula, here are some options, try this or that. Yeah. But it's a struggle, it, it especially like going in the grocery store or Walmart or Target and the whole shelf is empty. Like I get a pain in my stomach when I look at that. Yeah. And really educating families, like don't dilute it down further um, and, and trying to connect with families and connect with social work. And if we need to, to get you know, vouchers and gift cards to stop and shop or target or, um, what's on Amazon. And what's really been interesting, even in the town that I live in kind of have been the Facebook groups, like in this respect, I'm like two thumbs up for social media. I know. I know. I know. I love it. Like, has anyone seen Similac Pro sensitive or someone says, I just saw four cans of Nutramogen at Rite Aid. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Kind of when like you found the COVID test at the, at the, at the store and and people would post about it. So I feel like there's been a lot of goodwill ambassadors out there. You know, if anyone's out and they see this, could you drop it by my door and I'll send you a Venmo? Because right. If you have little kids at home, I remember how hard it is to get out of the house and who's driving to just get to one store, let alone like go to 10 to find something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always something, you know, and, and we all like, it was toilet paper, but you never wanted it to be infant formula, right? It's yeah, yeah. So, so much more concerning and, 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 and yeah. So I hope things are starting to turn and get a little bit better. Yeah. I think we could be innovative with toilet paper if we had yes, to be. Yes. <laughs> for sure. For sure. You know, we're talking about the patients and talking about the families and, and maybe kind of the role of counseling, you know, and having kind of speech pathologists reflect on you know, what has my coursework been in counseling in general? And then how comfortable am I, you know, counseling families of patients who have kind of pretty complex eating and swallowing problems? And, you know, a lot of that is, is, is practice. A lot of that is being uncomfortable, right? And I always say that to clinical fellows, like, this is going to be really hard and you're going to feel really uncomfortable. And I think sometimes it's really hard. I don't know if you had this experience early on, especially with feeding, you get the question, well, do you have any children? And it's sort of like, if you do or you don't, you know, your credibility is sort of like riding on that. Yeah. The neonatologist that we had when my son was in the NICU, I'll have to look her up at some point because she changed the trajectory for us. She changed everything. She, she didn't have children. She was, you know, single neonatologist in her thirties, but her way of not having the experiences was so non-judgmental because she just kept saying, you know, I don't know what it's like as a mom, but I do know these are your options. These are what other people have found comfort in. These are where other people have found support. And it was, it was, it was the most like refreshing approach to everything as opposed to, well, I did this with my kids, so I don't know what to tell you, you know, or this worked for us. Sorry, you're SOL, you know, and, and, I just, she changed everything. She just changed my whole mentality about, you know, okay, if this doesn't work, we'll try this. Or I'm not the world's worst mom. If this doesn't happen, we'll try something else. So yeah, it's, it's, I, it's really everything. It's, it's something that I wish that we put such, you know, I had a great counseling course in, in grad school and I, I wish that 
it was much more of an emphasis than, yeah. And I think sort of kind of simulation and role play, you know, now there's a lot with simulation and I, I think it's really important, you know, to do a little bit of that. Like, you know, let's have a simulation where you are going to tell this family that their child baby is aspirating and they're not going to be safe to feed by mouth right now. And, you know, just kind of practicing those types of things. Um, I kind of like what you said though, you know, that the physician or clinician without children does come kind of judgment free, right? Versus sometimes the family is looking for someone who has kids because they think they have more experience. But I always say to our younger clinicians, like you got this, right? You know, this, this is what you do. You've trained for this. And it's just about, about building confidence and you will have that session where you'll connect with the family and you'll just know because it will, it will feel right. And if you don't connect, just remembering that, you know, this family is processing so much and they're having so much loss that it's, it's so not about you and where you're at in terms of your counseling. It's just that they're overwhelmed and, and hearing another sort of not great piece of information, right? About feeding your child or not being able to do so efficiently is, is stressful. Yeah. I remember so many conversations we had with her and I'd go back to my mom and my mom's like, what did she say? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't like, I don't know. I, I, I just was so like, just so devastated by everything. I'm like, I didn't absorb a word, but you know, we, she said, we're going to just keep working. And <laughs> so it's, it's, yeah, I want to encourage clinicians. It's, it's definitely probably not you. It's definitely right. probably the, the mother who's just in, in shell shock. And you bring up a good point too, which is like, you know, parents are hearing so much information, like you said, like so much information and, and thinking about like what words we're using, you know, in radiology saying to a parent, like, well, your baby has deep laryngeal penetration. What What the heck does that mean? Yeah. 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 Is that good or bad? So, you know, now, you know, we really kind of, you know, want to be user friendly and, and, and again, like you can adjust your language and your interpretation to meet the parents where they're at. And some, for some parents, I'm like, it looks great. Nothing's going down as breathing too. This is awesome. And then I have other parents like walk me through the entire thing. Where's the epiglottis? Show me the vocal cords, you know, things like that. But yeah, just remembering that I think counseling evolves with time. And I don't think at times you can do anything to rush that, but you can just build upon it kind of patient by patient and you know, we all hopefully get older and wiser, right? And yeah, yeah. feel more confident. But I even tell my team there are days recently, I had a really complex patient that I walked away and I had seen them several times and they were leaving to go back to another country. And I just thought, I feel great about that. I, I feel okay about it. I think I did what was safe, but I guess I felt like, geez, I'm really worried about this baby, you know, um, and all these years in, I just thought it was, there were just a lot of medical complexities happening, but some degree of oral feeding was really important to this family, really important. And so I kind of met them in the middle, but I felt a little bit uneasy about that, but I knew that they had kind of a good follow-up once they got back home, but you know, it's, it's, it's difficult and it's always changing and, and no day really is ever yeah, the same. Yeah. I, I like what you said about it was, it's important to the family to have some component of oral feeding because I think some of the best, most productive conversations I, I've had with SLPs are 
doctors for my son was sort of like, well, what, what does your family want? You know, what, what is important to you? What is important? Cause I just remember being thrown so many things that I'm like, that doesn't really matter to us. Like, that's not a huge goal. Like that's not a priority for us. Whereas there was other things that I was like, why don't they know this is so important? You know, but we're all, we all come from such different backgrounds and different experiences that I think, you know, if I can give any piece of advice, it's just ask the family, like, what is the most important thing for, for you? You know, what would mean the most for you that we could work towards? What are some of these other things that maybe aren't that important to you that, you know, we'll work on at some point, but that always just changed my, my mindset too. When I just felt at ease with someone, because I felt like they actually cared about, you know, my child and how this all was going to unfold instead of just, well, you know, this is what the textbook says. So this is what we should do, you know? Right. Right. That's a really important point. And, you know, it's individualized care. And what I think might be important is not what the family wants. And and now even, you know, with less mod- medically complex patients, you know, will say to the parents, like, what are your goals? And honestly, a mom was like, I just need him to eat two vegetables. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Like he eats all these other things, but you know, I would like him to be able to take carrots and corn. Okay. Well, let's work on that because <laughs> that's important, right? To that family. Um, and you know, this also comes into play sometimes with kind of when do you get rid of the bottle, right? So if you could take all of your nutrition by mouth, but you'd have to remain on the bottle to get your NG tube out. Well, I'd rather someone on a bottle longer and their NG tube out, you know, and if, if, you know, we kind of all agree that that's okay. And they're able or working on developing like cup drinking and straw drinking skills and things like that. But, you know, and the parents like, what are people going to say when we show up at the the family barbecue and I've got to go feed them the bottle, you know, or like, I'm going to have to go inside so people aren't asking, you know, why is a two and a half year old on a bottle? It's like, well, it's not on a feeding tube. And, but it is, it's right. Like what, what's the lens and, and yeah. the optics yeah. Yeah. and, and, it's complex. It's so complex. It's so, it's so crazy. <laughs> it's like yeah. Living in the gray zone, right? When it comes to feeding and, and respecting families values and, and what they want. And number one, first and foremost is that the patient's always eating safely, right? That's number one. And then, you know, number two is, you know, or feeding safely and gaining weight and growing and, and we can work on kind of all these other things. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why it just was always important to me, like sort of the accessibility piece. Like I always didn't, I never wanted to be like stranded somewhere and not have access to like a specific cup for him. So I remember, you know, we, we had one therapist that wanted this like really specific cup that was only from this one brand and it took like three weeks to ship. And, but it was, and it was also the ugliest thing. Like you could tell that it was something designed for, you know, a kid with disabilities. And I just, there was nothing about it that I liked. (laughs) I was like, we've, there's gotta be something on the market that is easier, like just I don't know, more visually appealing. I can order it on Amazon, you know, something that would make our life easier. And so we found something right away and we've been with that cup for probably, I don't know, a year now. And I can like order it on Amazon. It's there the next day. We got eight of them. The school has 10 of them, you know, like it's, it, it makes our life so much easier than this one specific yes. $40 yes. one from a therapy company. You know, it just was so unnecessary. I thought. Yeah. I think that's an important point, right? Like a lot of it is to, to normalize, you know, um, yeah, that's, and like you said, it's easy, right? So if you're in another state or you're traveling that, you know, someone could maybe run out to CVS or Target and, and grab it and pick it up in that, you know, we're not using really expensive 
are over-therapizing somebody when we could maybe, you know, normalize things a little bit more. That's a great point too. So my other sort of, I love feeding and swallowing, but I also, you know, love cleft palate and craniofacial. Um, I think you, it sounds like you have some personal experience yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in terms of subject yeah. this cleft palate. So I teach um, at uh, two graduate programs here in Boston and I teach cleft and cranio and I I love it. I, I think it's just a really interesting area. And again, it's, it's a little bit more, I shouldn't, I don't know if I want to say black and white, but it's more mechanical, right? To learn about the velopharyngeal mechanism. And it's interesting working with infants with cleft palate and also looking at the evolution of those bottles, you know, and just like you're saying, the Haberman feeder is wonderful, but if you lose a part, you have to buy a whole other. That happened to us. We were on that and we were on vacation in Delaware and I lost one of the parts. I, I was absolute like mom meltdown. Like I was just sobbing over it, but it's, I mean, there's nothing worse than feeling like you can't feed your baby. Like there's just, there's no feeling that's worse than that. Yeah. Right. And then I, you know, I think the development of the Dr. Brown, you know, the blue paste feeding valve, which, you know, can promote just the compression style of sucking. And again, a lot of families are like, I like using that because otherwise if I have some other bottle, you know, or one mom's like, I'm at the airport and people are asking me, what is that? What's wrong with your baby? Why are you using that bottle? So, you know, feeding infants with cleft is, is always interesting. And I guess the second piece of that is I think I'm a little bit kind of an, of an anatomy geek or nerd or something. And part of teaching, I always say is, you know, an oral exam, like really doing a thorough oral exam. And we know it's hard with kids, but even with infants, you know, looking for, you know, if the baby's feeding with nasal congestion and they're having trouble with extraction, you know, looking at the uvula and really trying to look at the palate, even though their mouth is is very small and having an understanding of Roban sequence with micrognathia and what does a small jaw do to the airway and then what's the evolution of, you know, the development of the jaw or what intervention of surgery might be needed for that. So that's just another interesting population. And then seeing patients with different genetic syndromes or velocardiofacial syndrome or 22Q deletion. I think I always tell my students, you may see someone with that syndrome with feeding or a speech language or in the schools or things like that. And, and just having an understanding and I always think it's cool that Robert Sprinson, who's a speech pathologist, really kind of identified and was the one who made and came up with the diagnosis. So that's always neat for our field. And, and he's obviously extremely accomplished in, in his written textbooks and things like that. Yeah. What what sparked your interest in cleft palate, Cara? I, you know, I'm not quite certain. I did, um, when I came back to work at Children's long ago, um, I had to help cover in the cleft palate clinic. I also, though, gosh, did at the time when I was at Columbia had a course in cleft palate, and that was in 1995. So even way back when, and it was this really, I just remember it was like this really cool hardcover navy blue textbook. And I just thought, this is so interesting. I I love this. I'm just going to like, you know... I, I, there was something about it. It really sparked my interest. And then I was able through one of my clinicals to go up to Montefiore hospital and, and they had a big cleft palate clinic there. And so when I came to children's initially, I was doing like some speech and language, some feeding, and then started doing some cleft. And I just sort of liked, I don't know, it kind of felt like a puzzle to me, but I, I love 
kind of the predictability of the surgical timeline. Oh, we'll fix the lip at three months and then the palate at a year and sort of looking at the development of your feeding skills through that surgical timeline and, and supporting families through that process. So I love it. <laughs> it. it sounds like you guys just have like the most amazing interdisciplinary team. And I know you said you want to talk a little bit about team, but I think I always just have so much respect for hospital systems that actually work so closely together across disciplines. I, it's, it's just beautiful to see. Oh, we're getting big storms here now. Oh so. my goodness. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> about that. if we get interrupted via Zoom, I'll know why. That's a, that's a great point. And again, I, I, I do always, I'm, I'm acutely aware of, of, of my good fortune in, in being in a hospital where truly the speech language pathologist is really treated with equal respect. And I certainly think that that's something, you know, the reputation of all of our programs. And I think, you know, the level of training that we put into graduate students and we put into our clinical fellows and you know, that the SLP not only has a voice, but it's kind of a voice that, you know, people will listen to and turn to. And I think that's surprising. And I always have people trailing me and, and, and with me and observing and students and, and things like that. And, um, I think what strikes people is, wow, you really are able to speak in front of, you know, two physicians and the dietitian. And people are really not only listening to what you're saying, they're asking your opinion and then implementing your recommendation. And, you know, that's powerful. And, and I don't think that comes easily. I think, you know, we work in a really medically complex setting at in a really stressful environment. So I always say to clinical fellows, you know, what you see here in six months, someone might see in three years, right? Um, but again, it's because we are where we are. And so when I speak to speech pathologists or speak at conventions and people are in more rural areas, you know, I've equally just as much respect for them because they're the clinicians that have to be resourceful and reach out and bring this care that, you know, we have, or I have at my fingertips, you know, and and that's where I think actually telemedicine and Zoom has been really transformational in that area. Yeah. As I said, um, we are a team of, of 18 speech pathologists just in feeding and swallowing. And then um, our department is, um, we are under the umbrella of otolaryngology, so ear, nose, and throat, and communication enhancement is our department. And then under that, we have speech-language pathology, our clinicians that see speech and language disorders. And then we have our augmentative communication program, our deaf and hard of hearing program. And so feeding and swallowing used to be under the umbrella of speech language pathology. And I would say my, one of my goals was to see feeding kind of be pulled out and having us kind of be housed as our own team. Um, and I, I love being with all of my speech and language colleagues, but I felt like we were growing quite rapidly and our focus and the way our program is run, it's a little bit more, um, what do I want to say? Sort of seeing more patients um, because the nature of feeding is such that you're seeing patients more urgently, more frequently for follow-up. And then we were just growing where we were at different clinics. We had, you know, people being trained in video fluoroscopy, but more so we have so many multidisciplinary clinics. And so um, 
part of what that involved was, you know, kind of tracking how many SLPs we had that were doing feeding and then really how many clinics wanted or were requesting the services of feeding. And so letters from physicians, we had a long wait list. So kind of keeping track, you know, how long are people waiting to come in for a clinical feeding evaluation and at what age? And, and the, it's something we still struggle with is, is trying to get patients in efficiently. But I do think that we were fortunate that our administration heard that. We have some centers that were able to provide funding to bring an, an SLP on board because their center was growing, like the Airway Digestive Center. We have our Center for Airway Disorders, which is more airway, laryngeal cleft, laryngeal malacia. We have a couple speech pathologists on that team. We have a growth and nutrition clinic, which is more kind of failure to thrive and behavioral medicine, GI and nutrition are there. And everything just keeps sort of blossoming and exploding. So what when a clinic used to have one to two SLPs, now it has three to four. And then we are opening up different satellite clinics. So it hasn't been without growing pains because life, you know, um, (laughs) you know, we have a a, trying to do a master schedule with 18 speech pathologists across inpatient and outpatient and clinics and instrumental assessment in satellite clinics. Yeah. Takes myself and and, and, and my colleague um, and like two venti iced coffees. To- I believe it. Yes, I believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was what I was going to ask. Is everybody at the hospital? But you said you have some satellite clinics too that that you guys have now. Yeah, yeah. So we we have five speech pathologists that do all of our inpatient. Okay, and then we have um, most speech pathologists working across two sites, um, and then most SLPs have one to two sessions of instrumental assessment per week in radiology. And then we have different SLPs in certain clinics and that's kind of your clinic. And then everybody has a small number of, you know, kind of garden variety clinical feeding evaluations. You want to make sure people aren't so specialized that they can't, you know, see other types of kids with, with feeding difficulties. How do you guys manage like video fluoroscopy and fees? Is everybody trained in it or only a few people? That's a great question. Um, most of our speech pathologists, if not all are actually all are trained in modified barium swallow studies. Fees, we have a smaller number of SLPs trained as if we have a smaller fees program. And I do think that's one thing with had just kind of trouble completely getting that off the ground. Um, we have several of us trained, but I think our overriding go-to modality is modified barium swallow studies. But, you know, we have done some breastfeeding fees, which I think is another oh, just cool. yeah. <laughs> transformational area um, and some fees exams. But it's sort of like, physician availability, clinic availability, SLP availability, and all of that. So it's it's sort of one of those goals and something that we continue to work on on expanding our fees program. But but we do have um, everybody in radiology and able to do studies. And we're fortunate that we are able to have two SLPs typically in the radiology suite because we have a high turnover. You know, we could see, you know, six to eight patients in a half a day or 10 to 12 patients in a whole day. So it's kind of this alternating pattern with having two SLPs and gotcha. yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's really busy. <laughs> yeah, it is busy. That's great though. 
I, I love, loved all of this car. I could talk to you for hours and hours. So is there anything, anything else you want to touch on? Any, any final thoughts? I don't, I guess my final thoughts would be, um, you know, I, I obviously have a love for the field in my profession, you know, um, in, in my husband's great, he always marvels and says like, you love your job. Like that's, you know, he was an attorney and <laughs> he doesn't always love his job, but, um, I, I truly love what I do. I think even in teaching, I say, you know, everyone's like, I want to work in the NICU. And I'm like, well, that's not the be all end all for everybody. But if you want to do feeding, there are so many settings that can support, you know, your interest in that area. And I, it, it's a flexible field, you know, being a working mom, I've, you know, done 40 hours, 30 hours, 20, 30, you know, I've been back at 40 hours for some time now. My kids are a bit older, but just to have something that you're passionate about and that you can continue to get better with and learn. And that is always, always changing. And it's really in pediatrics, right? Never the same day twice. So it's, it's a great field. So I, I feel really fortunate. Oh, awesome. I, I love that, Cara. Thank you so, so much for sharing all of that. Yeah. Thanks for having me. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.